Coronavirus NZ, a daily stuff podcast. What a relief, i got to say. What, that we're going to level two? Oh yeah, but mostly that I didn't jinx us on Friday when I said we were about to have our last weekend at level three. A lucky escape, I'd say. Anyway, welcome to Coronavirus NZ for Monday the 11th of May. I'm Adam Dudding. And I'm Eugene Bingham. Each day we bring you the main headlines and some of the more unusual things about life under lockdown. And then we slow it down for a closer look at one particular thing. So we're heading to level two this week, but don't go planning a party for it, Adam. Mm, Yeah, so the big announcement today, shops, cafes, cinemas, gyms, those sort of things can open on Thursday. Schools can open on Monday next week, but bars have to wait until Thursday, May the 21st. Yeah, and lots of the messaging from Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern was basically, hey, knock off the booze, y'all. She pointed out that when you look at many of the clusters, they've been linked to occasions where people have got together to socialise and drink. Yeah, she said, look, go ahead, visit your mum, but don't turn it into a huge family reunion. Catch up with friends, but don't have any big parties just yet. They're restricted to no more than 10 people. But look, as much as there was a bit of finger-wagging, there was quite a bit of social distance-appropriate high-fiving and celebration. You know, we've still got a war on our hands, but we've won a significant battle, that kind of thing, sort of Churchillian sort of beating them on the beaches or something. But by Thursday next week, the Prime Minister reminded us, most businesses will be back to work well ahead of where most countries in the world are. One interesting absence, though, no insistence on wearing masks. And Ashley Bloomfield acknowledged, look, there is some difference of opinion about masks. You've heard people like Michael Baker from Otago saying he would prefer it be required for public transport and so on. But right now, says Bloomfield, the Ministry of Health's call is that no, we currently don't recommend. So here we come, level two, and it will be revisited in two weeks with the hope that the number of cases will stay as low as it has for the past few weeks and maybe level one after that. You know, someone who got a name check from the Prime Minister today was Dr Aisha Verrill, and later she's on our show. So remember, she's the epidemiologist who got sent in to do that audit of the Ministry of Health's contact tracing system and found it wanting. We talked to her about why contact tracing is still so very important, how ready we really are for Level 2, and why recently she's been avoiding TV interviews. But first, what's happened today? Three new cases of coronavirus today, including two linked to the St Margaret's Rest Home Cluster in West Auckland. They were nurses at Waitakere Hospital who have been at home in isolation and were tested before they could return to work. Even though they were asymptomatic, they tested positive. South Korea, which has had some real success in controlling the virus, has seen a spike with 34 new cases. Most of the cases were linked to nightclubs in Seoul's entertainment neighbourhood, which has recently begun reopening. Officials revealed a 29-year-old man had visited three clubs before testing positive last week. Russia has become a hotspot, reporting 10,000 new cases for an eighth straight day. In the past 24 hours, 88 people died, bringing the total to 1,915 deaths. So Adam, are you going to the New Zealand Book Awards ceremony tomorrow night? And how about the Iron Maiden concert on Wednesday? No, they were both in my diary though. Yeah, it's sad but true. It's an unfair question, I know, because as much as you would have loved to have gone to both those things, they are on the pile of things not happening because of COVID-19. And the list is kind of endless. Music gigs, food festivals, spectator sports, marathons, trade shows, which is disappointing for the likes of you, Adam, people who are missing out on going to Iron Maiden. But there's a bigger picture, and that's the list of businesses which are now on their knees, staring at a long list of cancelled events, which all equal lost income. National correspondent Steve Kilgallen has taken a really detailed look at New Zealand's events sector and the pain it's going through. Welcome back, Steve. Hi, guys. I think you can call me a friend of the show now, can't you? Upgrade me. 
That's true, you've reached that status. Now, what events have you missed out on because of COVID-19? I think the big one for me was uh, a race out in West Auckland that Eugene knows very well called yeah. the Backyard Relapse, which is this weird concept where you run a, I think it's about a 7K loop in the bush on the hour, every hour, until there's only one person left and they're the winner and everybody else is a, a did not finish. And I was quite looking forward to trying and failing miserably at that, but that was that was one of the last to go, actually. The guy running it, Sean Collins, had come up with all different ways of trying to make it work, but eventually... He, like every other event organiser in the country and on the planet, had to had to cancel. Yeah, and Sean, you spoke to him for your story and he pointed out that there was a bit of a twist came when the details about Level 2 came out last week. We always knew that events were going to be limited under Level 2 to some extent, but can you tell us about what that twist was? Yeah, so the big stuff, the, the touring bands at Vectorina, I think everybody realises they're not happening for a while, but the original Level 2, way back when, said that outdoor events were capped at a maximum of 500 people and indoor to 100. So outdoor events organisers had all been busily planning a way to try and make their events work at 500, including Sean, who runs a lot of trail races and orienteering races, mainly in West Auckland. And then when Level 2 was, well, the impending arrival of Level 2 was announced, there, there was this twist they were cutting that to 100 people, which makes outdoor events completely unviable for people like Sean and uh, Total Sport, who are topo-based firm to do similar things cycling running those guys are, are all deep back in in trouble again really because of this surprise change and how how have they responded they're pretty unhappy and they've, i think they've got some grounds to be when the change was made sport new zealand put out a long list of guidelines about how a regular sport could be played one of the things they said was if you say you're a football club and you've got seven or eight fields then each field counts um, effectively as a 100-person group. And in that 100 people, the, the actual people on the field playing aren't counted. So you could have 150 people on each of eight fields taking well over a 1,000, that's fine. So the event organizer is saying, well, if I'm running, organizing a running race and I've got 500 participants, but I set them off in waves of 100 half an hour apart, how is that any different to the football club with a whole lot of people there? And I think they've got a bit of a point. And I think their argument is correct that they've been forgotten about, that they're one of these little loopholes that, because policy is being made so quickly that's just been forgotten, you know, completely forgotten. And I've since had a conversation with someone on the inside who, who's effectively confirmed that that's the case. So there may be some hope that there might be a bit of a, a U-turn down the track. Okay. Because from a contact tracing point of view, those event organisers know exactly who's in their events, don't they? I would think so. I mean, they've got, they've got a list of participants. You were a timing chip. Your times are logged, so they know exactly where you were on the course at different times. And if I think about my over-35s football team on a Saturday... We've, Are you over thirty five, Steve? I know I don't look it, but uh, but I am. Um, it's amazing. You would have thought twenty five. When we fill in our team sheet, it's not necessarily entirely factual, and it's a best guess at who played and who's paid the subs. And I suspect the same for most teams. And if someone turns up late, someone comes to watch. I, I'm not. I'm not confident you're going to get an entirely accurate list of people who are at the game for most football matches for example where's a race I think you can be pretty certain who was there and at what time and how fast they ran and who they were near to at any time on the course. When you hear about event organisers, you think of big companies, but actually many of these are, are small, quite niche businesses, right? Yeah, so I tried to speak to a range across the sector. One of the reasons I rang Sean was because he's probably as small as and gets. He works in the business one day a week and his wife Madeline was working five days a week and has had to go back to teaching because work has dried up. So I sort of spoke to those guys to get to get one on the scale or up to like Brent Eccles, who is probably New Zealand's biggest music provider. He brought over, he's brought over the killers and... Paul McCartney and Ed Sheeran and then everyone in between just to get a sense of this sector which is really big people might not think how big it is but the New Zealand Events Association has got 3,000 members 
And if you think of the ripples, it's not just the event organizers, it's the guy who brings the portal loos, the guy does the signage, the traffic management guys, the timing chip guys, the merchandise people, the guys who make the t-shirts. Like there's a lot of allied sectors are really impacted as well. The ripples go a long way there, don't they? They do. And I, I think if we're showing a bit of sympathy for these guys it is to to think that while some of them are quite big entrepreneurs who will probably end up being all right, the guy who supplies the portal loos is a is is a very sort of unwilling uh, victim of this, you know? Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much. And just quietly, I think you dodged a bullet with the uh, backyard relapse, missing out on that. That's a tough event. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks a lot, Steve. Thanks, guys. Cheers. On Friday afternoon, the government released a whole big pile of documents. It's the paperwork that underpinned and informed government thinking behind a whole bunch of COVID-19 strategy. The briefing papers, cabinet minutes, key advice to ministers. It's sort of a glimpse under the hood at the machinery of government. There was information on all the big decisions, the actual alert levels and restrictions, the border closures, housing, income support, the wage subsidy, leave schemes. So there were internal conversations about stuff like whether to publish the names of businesses taking subsidies, discussion about the digital divide and whether kids were going to end up seeing more porn while at home in lockdown, pros and cons of whether liquor stores were essential services, the consideration of a temporary pause of GST, projections about unemployment, big stuff. Many of the topics have been points of public debate throughout the past couple of months. Take, for example, papers that dealt with whether butchers could open under Level 4. Remember, there was some public controversy over it way back when. If supermarkets could open, why couldn't butchers? And it turns out there was debate going on behind closed doors on this very topic too. Just as there was about takeaways. There was an argument that takeaways should be allowed to remain open, partly because of the message it would send to the public, who at the time were worried about food security. So... In a democracy, the release of this kind of information is vital. It allows the media and the public to see and scrutinise policymaking and to hold officials and politicians to account. That's important stuff. For me, the the slightly weird thing was that the first articles about this release on Friday afternoon spent more time talking about the timing of it than the actual content. So this came out on Friday afternoon and was immediately branded a, quote, document dump. Now, publishing loads of stuff at once, you know, a so-called dump, is... Nothing new. It's been a tried and true tactic from governments of every hue since forever. So the argument goes that by releasing it at 2pm on a Friday, that's a deliberate ploy. It's, It's designed to make it harder for the media to look at it in a lot of detail and to get the coverage out fast. And that helps make sure that any controversy that might be in there gets as little attention from the media and the public as possible. But I've got to say, and this is possible because I've never been a gallery journalist and don't really understand the game, but I just kind of thought, well, big deal. What matters is that we have the information. And sure, if it's too hard to cover it properly on the Friday and time for the evening bulletins or write the long piece for the weekend papers, we can just wait, do all the reporting the following week. It, it just seemed a little bit moany to me. Uh, I even heard various people saying, this proved the government isn't anywhere near as transparent as it likes to think it is. But what's so untransparent about handing over to journalists and in fact the entire world because this stuff was all put online at one time loads and loads of juicy documents about a super interesting subject yeah to me if you're being genuine about transparency there's a way to release a bunch of information and there's a way not to the best example of the good way is the budget everyone knows when it's coming out organizations prepare accordingly make sure there's enough staff on duty those kind of things Documents are released under a strict embargo, so coverage can be planned. Instead, these documents came out without any forewarning on a Friday afternoon after the 1pm press conference. 
and three days before the Prime Minister was due to front another press conference. Look, to me it's not the worst crime in the world, but it's calculated and cynical. But don't listen to us about it. We were talking to Stuff's press gallery reporter, Thomas Coughlin, so we asked him, what does he think? The big question to ask is, does the government have to have to release them at some point? And for most of those documents, not all of them, but for most of them, yes, it did have to release them. So the, the next big question is when and how. And I think when you look at the way that the government answered that question, the when and the how, then they answered it pretty cynically. What happened was at about two o'clock, I think, on Friday, media organisations got a, got a text in a WhatsApp group saying the documents were live. And that was it. Now, the government has got a whole lot of staffers who are ex-journalists. They know how the media works. They know that, you know, one, the public don't really tune in on a Friday afternoon. They don't really care or listen to political stuff over the weekend. Audience numbers tend to be lower um, on those days. So they knew that by releasing them on a Friday, they would be read or seen by fewer people because people are tuned out. Uh, And they also knew that media organisations weren't ready. They didn't have staff there to cover them. And, you know, it was the end of the week, so there was certainly a lot of, <laughs> a lot of people um, itching to get home. Although, you know, speaking as someone who was in the gallery that night, we were there pretty late. And, you know, given that it's COVID-19 time, actually, we all have to be out of there by a certain time, or at least half of us do. So um, we were certainly pretty stretched in that regard. Did he convince you, Adam? Uh, kind of. Anyway, so we've been in a kind of war with the virus, haven't we? At least that's some of the uh, the language that gets used around it. And in any war, you need a slogan or two. So in New Zealand, there's been the general message of unite against COVID-19. And we've had other messages sprinkled in there from time to time, the sort of be kind and stay home and obviously wash your hands. Now, in the UK, once they'd finally decided that a hardcore social isolation stay-at-home thing was the right way to go, they came up with a pretty solid three-part slogan, and it went like this. Stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. All three messages were stacked up, one on top of another, on a bright yellow background with black letters and red detailing. It was pretty clear, it contained a clear directive to stay at home, and it had the kind of slightly inspiring messages of protect the NHS and save lives. But now... Even though infection rates are still pretty horrendous, the UK is edging somewhat towards easing or maybe even ending lockdown. So Boris Johnson's government has had a crack at updating the slogan to match. So it now says, stay alert, control the virus, save lives. And to remind people that this is a reboot rather than the original, they've taken the colours to the next level as well. It's still yellow with black writing, but it now has green rather than red detailing. So that came out over the weekend and... Britain sort of lost its mind over it. Mostly, people were asking, WTF, Boris? And that's nothing to do with our flower investigation. So let's break down the message and work out why people were freaking out. Stay alert. Okay, what does that mean? Do I drink lots of coffee? Take no dose? Uh, Not sleep? I don't know. Okay, I'm, I'm alert. Control the virus. Again, nice idea. What does that mean? Does that mean staying home? Or does it mean social distancing? Or does it mean wearing a mask? Or burning sage? Or drinking bleach? It is, we can all agree, pretty vague. And then the third part, as before, is safe lives. So that still stands. Good idea. Now, it looks like United Kingdom has become quite disunited about it, with Northern Irish, Welsh and Scottish political leaders all coming out to say they totally disagree with dropping the clear, simple message of stay at home. Scotland's First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, for instance, said the slogan mustn't be used in Scotland and that the vagueness of the message was putting lives at risk. 
And even in England, there's been plenty of pushback. So some of that was from communication specialists and writers and political consultants and so on who have just come out and said, this is terrible messaging. It's incoherent, it's confusing, it's impossible to know what it's actually telling you to do. And the other critics are people who simply don't like the idea of ending lockdown too early and would just like to stick with the old messaging of stay home. And being British, a lot of these people have come up with some pretty creative responses in the form of parody reworkings of the slogan. So remember, the new slogan says, stay alert, control the virus, save lives. So I was just Googling for the variants which people have designed. We've got back to work, catch the virus, save the billionaires. And we've got, ooh, careful, mind how you go, be lucky. And another one I quite like, stay vague, raise anxiety, chance lives. And some of them get quite sweary, so I won't read those ones out. Another one I quite like is, do as you please, we're not fussed, if some of you die. <laughs> Email inbox. Right. So remember, this comes into viruspod at stuff.co.nz, and we've got one today from Jane Tate, who's picked up on something from our interview with Steve Kilgallen about booze on Friday. She says, from here in London... You could be right about less champagne being drunk post-lockdown, but don't forget about all those cancelled and rescheduled weddings. They'll be enthusiastically celebrated if and when they occur. 2021, perhaps. Thanks, Jane. Fair point. Chin chin. Plague playlist. So we're back to the parody songs, but this is one of those ones where they've taken the syllables and words from a real person talking and then chopped them back together, then used autotune and stuff to make it sing the correct melody. When you hear it, you will, of course, recognise the original was R.E.M.'s Losing My Religion, which is sung by Michael Stipe. But for the remake, which is from a YouTube channel called Politics Joe, the song has been retitled Losing My Civilians. And the singer is, well, I think I'll just let you figure that out yourself. That's me in Corona. That's me in the spotlight. Abusing my position. Trying to blame Chinese flu And I don't care if you have caught it Oh no, I said too much Want to hear the latest from the Lorenzen family isolation joke station? Of course, I will always want to hear the latest from the Lorenzen family isolation joke station. Well, I was going to tell you a joke about the virus, but I don't want you to get it. Good work, Kaylin Lorenzen. So cast your mind back to April the 8th. That's like almost two weeks into lockdown. Now, we at Coronavirus NZ went to the Science Media Centre. We wanted to do an interview with someone who knows all about epidemiology and could explain the future of COVID-19 after a lockdown, how to keep it under control and so on. The Science Media Centre are marvellous people and they came back to us really quickly with a name. They said try Dr. Aisha Verrill from Otago University. Her specialty is tuberculosis, but she really knows all about epidemics. So we emailed Dr. Aisha Verrill, asking her on the show, and she came back saying, I'd love to help. I have a job I have to do for the Ministry of Health this week. It needs all of my focus right now. Can we talk next week? Well, that job for the Ministry, you've heard all about it. It was an audit of New Zealand's contact tracing capacity, and when it was released, it caused quite a kerfuffle. So Viral said that New Zealand wasn't in very good shape with regards to contact tracing and we needed way more speed and capacity if we wanted to be able to keep the virus in check once we'd left the severe lockdown of level four. 
Anyway, since then, Dr. Farrell has been super busy, but we are delighted to announce that a month on, we finally have her on the podcast. Welcome. It's nice to be here, and I'm pleased I replied politely when uh, I was in the middle of all of that storm. Yes. It was a very polite and lovely email, and, and there, were, there were others, uh, Eugene, and you were back and forth. But anyway, so let's start with that report, the audit for the Ministry of Health. You were kind of invited inside the machine and invited to criticise it. How did that come about? I think by um, uh, the system in a democracy working, I had uh, raised concerns about the capacity of the system uh, from the outside as an an academic, and that got uh, discussed a lot in the media. I did a lot of explaining about what contact tracing is and how it could protect us. Uh, and so I think eventually uh, someone in the um, ministry thought, well, we should check to, to see maybe she has a point and invite him, uh, Dr. Bloomfield invited me to do the review. On contact tracing itself, for, for anyone who's under any illusion about how important it is, in the report you say it's as effective at fighting the virus as many vaccines. I think that would have surprised a lot of people. It is in combination with some social distancing. Uh, that you can achieve near 90% um, effectiveness and control. Uh, And remember that the point of outbreak control is always pushing that reproduction number below one. Mm. So if you can use these, we call them non-pharmacological measures, they're the measures we can use when we don't have a drug or vaccine. If you can use them in combination in a a smart way to um, keep the R value beneath one, then um, we don't have outbreaks and so we can continue much of our normal life. You found at the time that we went into alert level four, the system was basically overwhelmed and that was at a point when the daily case numbers were 70 to 80 odd. Was it shocking that the system had been overwhelmed at that point? It wasn't a surprise to me because um, I've uh, led the writing of our national Mm. tuberculosis guidelines and this is the same workforce that does our um, tuberculosis, case management, and contact tracing. So I, I knew that we had made compromises in our recommendations for tuberculosis care based on the workforce we had. So I knew there was no way that the very hardworking and experienced staff could keep up with the exponential increase in demand in an outbreak. That was a number of weeks ago. The audit was taken on board. But where are we now? Is New Zealand ready in, in the health sense for a world where people can shop and work and hug each other? The last official figures they released about the capacity um, of the contact tracing system was still just 186 cases per day and make, being able to make about 5,000 calls to contacts a day. So they still need to show that they can reach the higher levels that um, the government's accepted as a goal for itself. I know they're in the process of working on that second lot of increase to the to the capacity now, and I'm hopeful they'll get there um, before we move to level two. So, what are our chances of a second wave? I just I saw there was a um, sort of an alarming headline uh, in the Lancet not so long ago saying, "Watch out for the second wave." Um, I think they were talking about the whole world, but what are New Zealand's chances? Yeah, so the the second. Um, wave is a risk everywhere, but it's got to be a lower risk in New Zealand than it is anywhere else. We're in the best position you can be um, in the world, really. So um, 
the, the risk of a second wave is high in a place like New York or many European countries where they've had these lockdowns, they've had, they continue to have high rates of transmission. And then when they release the lockdown, there's every chance that with the increase of contact between people, uh, the case numbers surge back up. Um, or it could be their second waves happen after their summer. So as the as the winter starts up, as the northern hemisphere winter starts up, and maybe they'll have a good a good summer with the second wave to follow. For us, our population is most uh, almost all of us are still susceptible to um, COVID. So that remains a risk that we have to manage, continue to manage uh, cases at the border through really strong quarantine and um, continue to have these public health controls that are case management, contact tracing and social distancing measures. So let's talk about those sorts of measures that we're going to have to take to keep ourselves protected. One of those, of course, as you've mentioned, is, is the border. I had an Irish friend who who I said, reached out to and you know, we, we were talking to her and said, you know, how are you guys? And he sort of immediately shot back and said, well, what about you guys? You're going to be, your borders are going to be shut for years, aren't they? And I don't know why, but it hadn't kind of occurred to me. But of course, we're going to need to be protected until, yeah, for quite some time, aren't we? Yeah. So I think people are, are trying to work out now what's a safe way of re-engaging with the, with the world that doesn't risk an outbreak. And so you've heard the discussion about the trans-Tasman bubble and that, mm. that is saying that for a country that can provide assurances of having epidemiology as good as ours and all the safety systems around that with testing and tracing, we could have travel without quarantine. That's what's being proposed across the border. And then the other option is currently we have travel through the border for New Zealanders and that is a volume we can manage with quarantine. So... Is there a safe way that we can have um, quarantine for other groups to travel across the border? So it's not going to be worth it for a two-week visit to spend your whole two weeks in quarantine. So that rules out a certain sort of tourism. But it probably does mm. allow um, carefully managed international students who would stay for, a, stay for a long period of time. So two weeks of quarantine would be potentially worth it. And also there's an advantage we have in that market isn't there of being, of being a very safe country to visit now. Mm. So I think there are there are options, but of course you want to, all of those options to be based on really good public health principles. The second thing I'd say is, well, where would you rather be? Would you rather be in New Zealand where we've averted an outbreak, where the businesses opening now have some confidence that the government's going to be able to keep the country open? If you're in Europe or America, you don't have that confidence because your second wave could be right around the corner. So, yeah, I think there are lots of strengths to our position now that uh, we need to take advantage of having done this hard work. The thing that struck me about those comparisons is that I guess if someone concludes that it is an awesome idea for everybody to get sick, we could we could make that choice tomorrow. We could make everybody sick in New Zealand just like that, couldn't we? If If we looked abroad and found out that the death rate was much lower than we thought, and the health impacts and ability for our health system to manage much greater, then yes, you don't lose the option of having an outbreak. But looking across the world, that's not what I see. These outbreaks are public health, social and economic catastrophes. So uh, while that choice is always on the table, I don't know why it would ever make a different decision. Mm. Is there any way that herd immunity makes any sense before a vaccine arrives? 
herd immunity makes great sense with a vaccine. And that's where the phrase is uh, borrowed from, isn't it? We try to achieve herd immunity safely by administering a vaccine that's been through clinical trials uh, that we know protects people. But the situation with COVID is we are unsure if you get the natural infection, whether or not it creates lasting immunity. It may uh, not create immunity. It may only give immunity for a short term. So all of these are, are uncertain. So the benefits of, uh, as in a, you know, and I'm using air quotes here, if, if you believed in the herd immunity hypothesis as the UK once did, then uh, the benefits are very speculative. And it seems you're killing a lot of people to, in pursuit of a goal that at the moment doesn't even look attainable. Right. Now, on this podcast, we've been rather interested in whether New Zealand's going to get a Bluetooth app. We sort of assumed there would be, and then it's looking a little bit less obvious now. Uh, What are your thoughts about it? So I think we really want to use technology well to support our contact tracing. And I think I'd just keep our thoughts in that really broad space rather than immediately zeroing in on the Bluetooth option. One of the signals that's coming through from the data is that COVID is a disease of indoor gatherings, basically. So there are many different ways you could use technology to register that you've been at an indoor gathering and QR code check-ins might be just as as good, well, it might be better than Bluetooth, to be honest. The concern I have about Bluetooth is that it's not very accurate. And I've talked to some of the scientists supporting the Google Apple work, as well as scientists who have looked at the Trace Together app developed by Singapore. That's the basis of the Australian app. None of them have produced good data about the accuracy of Bluetooth at determining exposure. So the risk is you end up with a bunch of false positive contacts, and that has some bad public health implications. Because if you are isolating a lot of people based on false positive results, you end up, say, isolating 200 people to prevent one person developing COVID, then that is hugely inefficient and frankly just as disruptive as having an outbreak because that's 200 people who have to be kept home from work. So I think um, and you need to be able to have a process for managing those junk results. And it seems like the process is often the results get read by a public health nurse with the index case and you're asked to remember, was this one really likely a, a contact? Where were you at X time? So you're back to relying on human memory a whole lot. <laughs> and then um, that that's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario with some of these Bluetooth apps is that the public health officials are totally out of the loop. And I think that is how some of them are designed. And so there's no opportunity to edit those false positive contacts out. And that leaves the potential for really a loss of trust between the app if it was run by the government and the public. So I I think the area is really fraught on the Bluetooth front. I was optimistic about it at first, but I think these concerns about accuracy really make me want to see another country have a go at using it before I'm clear that that's really where we want to go in New Zealand. Now, one final and important question. Routinely, before interviewing someone, we quickly uh, stalk them on their Twitter feed. And you recently expressed some concern about your hair 
the, the mullet situation that might be happening soon. And you did say, and I thought this was quite helpful, I'm going to stop doing media except radio, and we're kind of radio. So um, congratulations to us for helping you out, first of all. Um, and, but second, sec, secondly, I am worried about your mullet situation as well. Tell me about it. Well, um, I think a condition of opening for hairdressers should be that the first cuts go to essential workers. So I'm hoping that'll be my out from the, the mullet situation <laughs> um, uh, faster than everyone else. So uh, that, that's my personal little wish, my official health advice. There have got to be some privileges of rank, surely, you know. You need to walk in and say, look, I'm the person who called out Ashley Bloomfield. Cut my hair right now. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that'll happen. <laughs> and that's not what went down anyway. Aisha Viral, it took a while for us to get you on, but we got there. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I hope to talk to you again. That's the Coronavirus NZ podcast for Monday the 11th of May. I'm Adam Dudding, he's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to Aisha Farrell, Steve Kogallon, Alex Yu, Catherine George, Patrick Crudson and Carol Hirschfeld. Any more names, I don't reckon I could do it in one breath. You can listen to previous episodes on all the podcast apps and the Stuff website. If you want to get in touch with us, don't forget you can email viruspod at stuff.co.nz. Go on, you know you want to. Also, for those of you who want to support Stuff's journalism, the company's recently set up a system where you can make financial contributions of as little as $1 via a link on the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz. Arte Evas.